Hi, everyone. This is Andy Moore, and welcome back to Andy's Treasure Trove, the podcast where I bring you interviews with engaging people and take you along on audio adventures in California and elsewhere. And speaking of adventures, today you're coming along with me on a hike I took in 2009 with my friend Brooks Collins in the hills near San Francisco International Airport where we searched for the wreckage of a cargo plane that flew too low after taking off from SFO in 1964 and crashed into the ridge that Brooks and I hiked 40-something years later. Come along with us as we hike and chat about interesting and amusing things along the way. Brooks is a great conversationalist, and he's knowledgeable in an astonishing number of topics. I, as usual, ask a lot of questions and make some feeble attempts to be amusing. So let's go. The journey starts inside Brooks's car as we drive to our destination, and I ask him what he had for breakfast so I can set my recording levels. So what did you have for breakfast? Um, oh, that's another guilty pleasure. I had pizza. <laughs> All right, well, Brooks has arrived, and he's well fortified having had a pizza breakfast, and he's brought sheaves of information about aviation safety and... It's amazing how you, what you can find on the web these days. So what are we doing today, Brooks? Well, basically we're going to visit um, a site of a, an airplane crash. This is uh, something I've only done twice before in my life, but it, I've, I've always been interested in accidents and, and disasters and things like that. I think it has a lot to do with sort of the the transformative power of, of disasters. They can definitely change your life, and especially in the early parts of my life, I was looking for any form of change I could find. I started reading books about uh, ocean disasters after reading A Night to Remember about the Titanic. And I remember one other book I read called S.O.S. Great Sea Disasters or something like that. It um, convinced me to never, never go on a boat that was the most of anything since the most fire-safe boat in the world, the Morro Castle, burned to the waterline, the most unsinkable boat, the Titanic, sank, and the most beautiful boat, the Andrea Doria, was nailed by a freighter in the fog and also sank. So you got to watch out for those. Hubris is a problem with boats. So the first lesson of the day is beware of superlatives. <laughs> so you said you've only done this a couple times, but I was under the impression that this was a hobby, a lifelong hobby, and that you had been to many crash sites. No, not many crash sites. I only started going to crash sites about, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago. There was one near where I lived, and I got interested in that. And uh, there's become, over the years, quite a few people who seem to be interested in uh, what they call air wreck archaeology or some of them just call um, air wreck adventuring. Mm -hmm. People who go to crash sites, uh, especially of exotic aircraft, like uh, there's a, a crash site of the X-15, which has been visited a lot. And uh, there's an online site called check6.com, which has a lot of the crash sites listed. And it also lists some of the history of the crash and uh, the reason things crashed. The, the thing I like most about air crashes is that they're puzzles. Um, they have all of this information and it's getting more and more, they're getting more and more information every, every 
decade or so as they increase the uh, the data and the amount of information that's recorded during flight. Mm-hmm. But they're always, you know, it's a it's never single point of failure with modern aircraft. There's always a string of events that happen that put the plane in danger and then finally cause it to crash. And so it's a it's an interesting puzzle, a little macabre perhaps, but an interesting puzzle to solve. Well, if we find any body parts, it'll be macabre. <laughs> Otherwise, there uh, were only I'm three, game. There were only three victims, and they were all removed from the crash site. It was a cargo plane crash. So uh, this crash has a name. The uh, the crash doesn't site doesn't have a name, but it was a uh, um, the aircraft was Flying Tiger, Flight two eight two, which was a Lockheed um, Constellation, which was a beautiful aircraft. Um, sort of looked like a greyhound, had a long, arching um, fuselage, a triple tail, and uh, was used before the advent of jets as pretty much the most uh, luxurious and largest long-range airliner. Now, this one had been retired as an airliner and was being used to haul cargo. Yeah, because I thought Flying Tiger was a cargo line. It is. And they uh, apparently... The plane in question took off um, from San Francisco airport very heavily laden, and they were trying to gain altitude and fly through the gap in the hills at San Bruno, and unfortunately got off off course and crashed just near the Coast Guard radar station. And when did that happen? Uh, let's see. The date was in 1964. And I believe it was Wednesday, December 23rd, 1964. According to uh, Check 6, had a cargo of electronics, bolts of fabric, women's scarves, bandanas, purses, and costume jewelry for the Christmas holidays. It was bound for JFK in New York. All right, we're going to its actual destination. Why don't we just drive up there and take a look? Okay. Okay, well, I'll wear my official AOPA, Association of Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Are you an owner, a pilot, or both? I was a pilot when I was about 14. My father was required to take flying lessons for his work. And I begged and wheedled my way into getting lessons at the same time. Uh-huh. So I actually went as far as getting a solo license, and then my parents told me I was spending too much money. So I soloed in a Cherokee 140 and then hung up my wings because of uh, the need to save a little for college. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I've always loved aircraft, and I've always loved airplanes, and I've always loved flying. All right, well, this is that information from check6.com. That's C-H-E-C-K hyphen S-I-X.com that Brooks brought along. And it has a little bit of information on the Flying Tiger line, the cargo line that we were speaking of, formed in June of 1945 by a group of former C-46 hump flyers with General Claire Chenault's Flying Tigers in China during World War II. Originally the National Skyway Freight Corporation and renamed in 1946, the airline concentrated exclusively on freight operations, military charters, 
and as a scheduled U.S. transcontinental service in the late 1940s. In 1969, the scheduled routes were amplified by service across the Pacific. Now this plane has its origins in June of 1938 when Lockheed began design work on the airliner to satisfy a transcontinental western and air requirement for a non-stop transcontinental airliner with a 3,500 mile range and 6,000 pound payload capability. And they began working on the prototype in 1940, but then the Second World War intervened. There was a prototype which first flew in 1943 as a military aircraft. It changed its designation to the C-69 Constellation. should probably clarify that Hump was the uh, World War II slang for the Himalayas, and the Flying Tigers were freighters who uh, supplied the Chinese um, army from Indochina, I think Burma by flying over the Himalayas, which are, shall we say, a little bit higher than most mountain ranges. Okay, so the, the plane got its name from being able to fly over the hump. Not the plane, but the Flying Tigers line. Flying Tigers was their nickname as a military outfit as well as uh, a commercial outfit. Got it. On Wednesday, December 23rd, 1964, a Flying Tiger Lane Constellation arrived at San Francisco International Airport from Japan. As Brooks said, it was filled with a cargo of electronic equipment, bolts of fabric, women's scarves, bandanas, purses, and costume jewelry for the Christmas holiday. It refueled in San Francisco Airport and departed just after midnight with a crew of three people and 41,000 pounds of cargo, 136 pounds of mail, and 5,000 gallons of high-octane aviation fuel. Uh-oh, heavy fog and rain. Large cold frontal system moving onshore. Heavy flooding was destroying homes at a wholesale pace. And already they had lost a Coast Guard helicopter in these conditions. And yet the, f the flight left from runway 28, headed out over the ocean to circle and gain altitude, then travel east towards New York. So basically it was gonna do a big U-turn over the ocean. However, shortly after takeoff, the plane veered to the right of its planned course. The pilot, Jabez A. Richards, 49, of Bayhead, New Jersey, asked the tower for permission to change his radio frequency from takeoff to departure frequency. With him were Daniel Hennessy of Hillsboro, California. Andy, right here is where the plane was trying to go. Where we're driving now ah. is the gap in the hills south of, or north of San Bruno. That's right, in the east we see the San Francisco Bay and the mountains beyond. And right in front of us there are a whole bunch of homes in a little valley, a little gap in the hills. And now you see we're going up a hill, we're gaining altitude, and we'll be gaining altitude steadily until we reach the crash site, which was at 860 feet, I believe. And the captain has left on the seatbelt sign, so we still have our seatbelts fastened. Please, no moving about the cabin. So the third crew member, Paul Entz of North Hollywood, California, was also present. And just a mere seconds after the request to change radio frequencies, the plane vanished from the tower's radar scope. 
So now we're on foot and we're walking somewhere I know not where, but Brooks knows. Well, we're headed up into the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, just west of uh, Skyline Boulevard. And it looks like they're building more of the Skyline College campus up here. Aha, according to the sign, this is the Sweeney Ridge Trail. And if we can believe that sign, we are indeed about to step onto the Sweeney Ridge Trail. Don't ask me who Sweeney was. And there's that characteristic smell of California country like this. Do you, do you notice that the predominant aroma? Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's definitely green. It smells like, sort of like Orbit gum. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, that's you. See those oh. red things? I think those are trem tremendous. This stuff, the color is just so bright. Yeah. And no, I don't know what they are. Might be those pretty red things. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it is, but I'm not sure. Is I think. It's on your hand is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's an allergen. I, that's what I think of it. It's an allergen. It looks like um, hemlock. And I think it's quite poisonous. Well, you just smeared your fingers on it. Yeah, I wanted to see if it was wild anise, so I crushed one of the seeds. The other side of that hill over there is the, uh, the gap the plane was trying to fly through. Unfortunately, they uh, turned towards the ocean and turned too far, so they went off to the right of their planned course. And, unfortunately, the area here is higher than the gap they were shooting for. Now we're up uh, high enough that we can see the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Point Reyes stretching all the way out into it. I can see the Golden Gate. I can't see the bridge, but I can see the Golden Gate from here. And I can see Mount Tamalpais shrouded in clouds. And the old clock on the steeple is telling us that it's 11 a.m. Or it could be the recording in the steeple blaring out of the speakers, pretending to be bells. Well, at least it's not only in my head. You hear it, right? What? on that fateful day, on a day very much like this day, except it was nothing like this day. <laughs> well, actually, the cloud condition is similar. Low ceiling, broken, and then a, an overcast above that. But it's not raining and it's not foggy. And it's not midnight and dark. <laughs> but other than that, well, we're almost up to the top now. Hear that? Is that the ghost of flight? What was the flight? <laughs> 213. 282, I think. 282. 
but no, that's it's a modern plane going through the gap. We're not far away. Don't fall in the gap. The Constellation wasn't a jet, and it had four engines. Look at that bird of prey on top of that tree in the foreground. Oh, yeah. What do you think that is, a red-tailed hawk? Um, it's a hawk of some sort, but I couldn't tell you which one. It's a little small for a red tail. Red tails are the ones that make that call that you hear in every movie for every bird of prey known to man. Oh, that ee, ee. Yeah. It's, it's not actually the call of an eagle or the call of, a, of an osprey, but uh, it's real easy to record one in California, so it gets used an awful lot. Yeah, you know, I thought about that. I've, whenever you see a, a bird of prey, you hear that noise, but you figure they all can't sound the same. <laughs> Unless they're messing with our heads, our human heads. I thought it was the mice that were experimenting on us. But if you haven't read or listened to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you wouldn't know about that. Oh, I thought you were just saying mice because we all know that mice are common lab animals. <laughs> mice and rats. Well, it was uh, the theory in Hitchhiker's Guide that the mice actually had the entire planet constructed as a computer. And they uh, used to run experiments on us by pretending to be lab animals and then running down the wrong corridor or eating the wrong bit of cheese. What did they learn from us? They wanted to find out the question, the question to everything. They, uh, the story was that, uh, that they had devised a huge supercomputer called Deep Thought to give them the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And after 10,000 years, it finally came up with the answer, and unfortunately it was 42. <laughs> To oh, which, did you see that little bunny just yeah. jump run across our path? I don't want to see that hawk go after that bunny. <laughs> That's why it was moving so fast. So huh. the answer is 42. We just don't know what the question is. That was basically what the computer told them. So they had to build the earth to answer the, the question, what is the question? <sighs> Let's pause here for a moment. Yeah, okay. Well, now I can see the Golden Gate Bridge. It looks like a little tiny toy in the distance. Huh. You hear the, how the sound of the airplane engine is intermittent? Kind of goes... Oh, yeah, now that you mention it. That's... um. Auditory interference from two engines. So you know that that's at least got two engines on that plane. In other words, they're sort of out of sync and in sync and the, the, the sound changes? Yep. I just thought it was the wind shifting between us and them. Nope. A single engine plane will have a, an uninterrupted drone and a twin will, uh, the volume will go up and down depending upon whether you're at a place where the sound waves reinforce or they subtract. Fascinating. Now, 
How many propeller planes are up there? Uh, large planes, let's say. I know all the small, a lot of the small ones are, but how many propeller planes, planes are still in use uh, versus jet planes? Well, there are a lot of propeller planes that do short hops and uh, places that you can't get to in a jet because either there are not enough people interested in going there or the runways are too short. Um, up in Alaska and in places like Australia where you really can't get around in a car, um, planes are the most commonly used mode of transportation to those areas. And there's your red tail. Ah, in flight. I love the way it tilts its tail to uh, turn. We have a red-tailed hawk that sometimes visits our backyard in the city. I've only seen it twice. It's amazing how uh, adaptable some animals are to the city. We had uh, about half a dozen raccoons living in the roof over our bathroom in 23rd Street. <laughs> and they made quite a racket. Like scuffling and things or, or whimpering or what Scratching, kind of? Scratching, vocalizing, running their little claws along the, the ceiling. Do your best impression of those raccoons vocalizing. Well, it was mostly the scratching, but they, they made a little screamy howl. When I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one time I looked in the a tree, up in a tree in the backyard where I was staying. And I think it was a, um, what are those animals? Uh, possum? I think it was a possum. Mm -hmm. And it was just there staring at me and it didn't move and I didn't move. What's that? A dead mouse. Dead mole, I think. A dead mole. It looks like a little seal because it's sort of inflated. It looks like it's freshly dead. Uh, well. Well, although it is a little bloated. Yeah. There's all sorts of wildlife and dead <laughs> wildlife here. Now, is that Pacifica down there? Yeah. Okay, now, I've never been up here looking down into Pacifica. It's funny because from here, it doesn't look nearly as populated as it does. Well, this is the south end of Pacifica. Um, the hill you see with the houses on it there is more or less the last part of Pacifica. The road that goes by there goes up over the mountain to Montera. But how much longer will it go over the mountain? Uh, well, we're hoping that by 2010 or so, it will actually go under the mountain. There's a big tunnel project going in there now. I know, I see the cranes. Step over here and you can see the cranes that are holding the equipment that are building that tunnel. Well, they're actually building the flyover. The tunnel's being made by big, machines called road headers that uh, grind away the rock in front of them and then sweep it behind them for easy pickup by the guys running the skip loaders. Huh. Now when you say the flyover, you mean that bridge? Yeah. That, that goes right into the side of the mountain there where they're boring the hole. Right, they've got a, a gap to bridge before they get to the, the tunnel. So that, that way they avoid the entire slide area, which is kind of significant. I remember when it last slid and closed off the road, my commute went from 40 minutes to an hour and a half. And that's one way. I think they should have just let you stay home with pay. 
I must admit, I listen to a lot of books on tape. <laughs> now, when you listen to books on tape, are they usually read by the author or an actor or a bunch of actors? Usually it's best to have them read by, the, by an actor rather than the author. The exception to that rule, I think, is uh, John le Carre, who could have been a good actor himself and reads the parts quite well. But mostly writers should write and actors should act? I think that's probably the case. But, you know, sometimes ex-spies can write and act. Well, then there's hope for me. I didn't know you were in the service. Shh. <laughs> Actually, my, our uh, former real estate agent used to work for Radio Free Europe. And she was telling me all about it and how she found out that it was really just a front for the CIA. Oh, no, not that. There was an entire airline called Air America, which was basically set up and run by the CIA. They did a lot of the jobs where they would deliver equipment, weapons and the like, to friendlies in other countries, sort of off the books. Uh -huh. They flew out of Moffett Field here oh. when they were supplying the uh, war in El Salvador. Along with a lot of other things, their cover got pretty severely blown in uh, the Vietnam era don't know if they even exist anymore. Except in Mel Gibson movies. <laughs> hey, how about that Mel Gibson? <laughs> Sweeping Britney Spears up and helping her. Isn't he a nice man? Uh, who's Britney Spears? <laughs> well, her name is an anagram for Episcopalian. Or is it Presbyterian? Oh. Uh, Soon it'll there's be. There's no B in Episcopalian. <laughs> Then it must be Presbyterian. <laughs> Soon it'll be Catholicism. Ah, well. Opus Dei and all. Yeah, I was raised in the Episcopalian. And uh, I, can, I tell you, it's an interesting life being raised both um, Catholic and Protestant. Uh-huh. <laughs> all in one church? All in one church. High and low. Well, now we're up high enough so that we can look in both directions. We can see the Pacific Ocean off to our right and the San Francisco Bay off to our left and all the it's surrounding... The airport down there. Oh, there's the airport. So you see, they didn't get very far. Yes. I think they were in the air at most two minutes before the crash. Most aircraft crashes seem to happen during approach, landing, takeoff, and climb out. And uh, it's also a myth that most airline crashes or airliner crashes aren't survivable. Um, about 60% have survivors. And uh, you just don't hear as much about them. And of course, things have been getting a lot safer, so we don't hear about crashes in our country all that often, although there are still some in Africa and other parts of the world. Oh. Now we're coming up to a building. It looks like an abandoned military building. It's part of the old Coast Guard radar base. The old Coast Guard radar base. 
you know, one of the interesting things about the Bay Area is all these old Coast Guard and otherwise military posts that are abandoned. Some of them used to be at the ready to shoot the invading Japanese during World War II, although they never came, unless you believe some of the stories. <laughs> Further along this uh, trail, there's a Nike missile base that was designed to protect San Francisco from Soviet ICBMs. There was a Nike missile base right above where I grew up in Northridge, down in the LA area. Uh -huh. <clears throat> and one time my sister and I, our parents had given us a used car to share. Uh, 1960 something Pontiac we, that we named Poindexter. <laughs> so Nancy and I decided to take our new used car and we were, you know, 16, she was 18 maybe. And we drove up to the Nike missile base just to see what was there. And it was still, I think it was still staffed at that time. Well, we got all the way up there and we stepped out of the car and we noticed boiling hot water shooting out of the engine onto the ground and we thought, oh, we better get back down to the gas station. So we barely had time to even stretch our legs and we got back in the car and zoomed all the way down and we got down to the bottom we went to a gas station and everything was fine, the water was fine, everything was fine. Just a little overheat, a little overflow and we thought it was the end of our day, which it was. <laughs> so now we're walking around this abandoned graffiti covered... I think this was actually the uh, generator shack or it could have been one of the antenna emplacements. Oh yeah, antenna, you can see there's a big coaxial cable sticking out of the ground. Oh right, yeah, I see that. And I'm gonna try and get oriented as to where the crash site is. We may actually have walked slightly past it. So the crash site, I think we're here, and the crash site is right, right in there. there. So where's the wreckage? Well, most of it was hauled away. <laughs> I'm kidding, I figured it would have been. You can find small pieces still, little things like, oh, say, a fuel line. Oh my or God. Actually, a, that's a lubrication line of some sort. Where did this come from? It came from here. There are bits of uh, plexiglass from the windows. Oh my God, Brooks is bringing out of his bag the uh, booty of another scavenging trip from another time. And somewhere in here is a little lump of melted aluminum. It gets pretty hot, and the aluminum skin of aircraft turn into little blobs like that. Wow. And this was, is this a window or a...? I think it was a window. And it's curved, so it was probably one of the porthole windows. This is pretty cool. You brought your own wreckage. <laughs> well, let's go see if we can find some more. Yeah. So... Right in here, where these trees are, uh -huh. I believe is the impact site. It looks like a bucolic hillside. It was the site of horror and tragedy. Well, aircraft are unforgiving of mistakes, like not knowing where you are. They call it situational awareness in most modern parlance. And uh, it is, it was very difficult in those days. To navigate. Um, they were flying using a radio beacon. Basically, they took off in the blind. They would have been looking at a needle and seeing if it deflected from a certain frequency. They were only off by 
a mile or two. But unfortunately, at that phase of flight, it's, it's a fatal error. In fact, I believe the nearly last trans, uh, transmission was a request of the radar facility that was monitoring them to tell them how far they were out of, out of position or if they were out of position, which in fact they were. Oh, and now I just noticed the uh, Farallone Islands out there. One time Jack and I were out walking at Land's End with a friend and I looked out and I saw, you know, that bumpy uh -huh. island-like shape out there. I said, oh, look, it's the Farallones. And we said, oh, yeah, it is. And we hiked a little further and we looked back out and one of my companions said, look, the Farallones have moved. <laughs> and what we had been looking at was a barge piled with earth and we thought it was an island. Every now and then, there's an inversion layer off the, the ocean here, and you can see the Farallons and an inverted image of the Farallons above mm. them. It's very bizarre. I've seen that on a couple of ships from time to time that were sailing into San Francisco Bay, and for a long time, I couldn't figure out what they were. It sort of looked like a, an oil derrick or something being moved into place until I realized that it was a ship connected to itself its image inverted above it. Wow. I've noticed that phenomenon in Santa Cruz, looking across the bay uh, towards the Monterey Peninsula, and you sometimes see a, dim a double image of the peninsula. Well, here more or less is the hillside that it crashed into. I think the wreck actually carried the, some of it up and over the site. But the only wreckage I've been able to find before was down in this area. So uh -huh. we're going to have to do a little, little bushwhacking here wander in, see what we can come up with. We're clambering through the sagebrush and wildflowers. Part of a bulkhead and uh, looks like a couple of relays were attached to it. This may have been some of the electronics and a spar. You can tell this is part of an aircraft because it's all made out of aluminum. Now, is, is that green color just moss or something? No, or? I think that was the, the paint. This was an inside part of the aircraft, so it would have been painted a kind of, you know, industrial green-yellow. Uh-huh. Actual wreckage. There's a plane going where the other plane would have been. Ah. See that gap? See yeah. how close they were to where they should have been? Yeah. Yeah, that's just a stone's throw from here. Yeah. Turned a little too tight to the, to the right. Just slightly off the angle they wanted. Okay, now this is where the hike gets a little bit trickier. We're going to have to go into the higher brush here because this is the area where the large pieces of wreckage have still remained. Okay. So, we'll just see if we can... Here we go. Bend our way in. Through the hemlock. Tiptoe through the hemlock. Now, is, this, is there going to be a poison, poison oak? Um, yeah. Oh, what's this? Well, it's plain wreckage interspersed with some stuff I'm not sure of. Um, some of this may be like this piece here, which is obviously not aluminum, is uh, probably something left over from the the Pleistocene era? 
the Coast Guard. Whereas this, which is obviously melted and burned um, cloth of some sort, is, uh, or actually this is a, a gasket of some type. And uh, there are bits and pieces here of aircraft aluminum. You can see how, how an aircraft crashing is a very destructive event. That's a piece of metal that's torn up into a curlicue. Uh, here we have maybe a fuel line. This is aircraft aluminum, so it was obviously part of the plane. Uh -huh. And the fuel line's been melted wow, from the fire. It may have been an exhaust line. It looks like that's possible. This is an intriguing piece. To me, this looks like part of a seat, but I don't know. It's possible. This is a uh, stainless steel through fitting that is actually mounted in steel. So this must have been part of the engine's fuel system something. Hmm. And, uh, uh, this is a, a rib of the aircraft that was torn out. The force has uh, popped all of the the uh, fasteners out of it, or almost all, or a couple that are still in place. Mm -hmm. This is quite a concentrated pile of stuff here. It may be that. Here's some more of that fabric. Yeah. Yeah, maybe somebody combed around here and made a little pile of stuff they found. It's possible. Now. Now, I don't necessarily feel like I have to go deep in there. <laughs> but it, unless there's something just so amazing. That well, the last time I was here, I found a part of the landing gear. It was the largest piece of wreckage I could find. But this area is definitely too overgrown. I came in the fall last time. And I don't think we're going to get much further into it. Okay. Well, as our listeners can hear, this is still a well-traveled route. There's a lot of airline traffic above us. The good thing about podcasting is that if I tumble down the mountain, it'll make great audio. <laughs> now, what do you think is the ethical... Uh, pause a moment and tell me what you think is the ethical... Um, situation when you find wreckage like this that you want to take home as a souvenir but you also want to leave here for other future explorers? Well, um, both the places I visited I took a few small scraps but left anything really large. Um, these aren't archaeological sites. They're not something that a scientist, for instance, is going to come along and study at some point. Uh -huh. Most of the wreckage for this plane was just hauled off and put in a dump somewhere. So if I took this little piece of aluminum as a souvenir, you, think, you, you don't think anybody would be critical? No. It may <laughs> be considered a little macabre, since it's from the crash site where three people died, but I don't think that there's any serious ethical question. So we're trudging back up to the top of the mountain. Yeah, I seem to recall the largest wreckage was in the, the cleft there, which has grown up quite a bit since I was last here. Oh yeah, those, the plants in that cleft are taller than we are. 
Now, was I right that it looks like it's um, low tide in the bay, or is that just darkness from the clouds? I think that's darkness from the clouds. I think you're right. Or the water there has wind blowing on it, makes it ripply, and it doesn't reflect as much. Right, of course. I guess you'd want deeper water. Would you want deeper water or shallow, shallower water next to an airport? Um, Deep to cushion the crash, but shallow to rescue the... Water doesn't really cushion a crash of an airliner moving at high speed, but at low speed, um, I think you want shallow water so it doesn't sink. Uh -huh. um, at high speeds, um, hitting the water is like hitting concrete. There's virtually no difference. The, um, the scenario for ditching at sea is to try and take the plane, I think, along a wave top, but it's not really the kind of thing you want to do. Oh, the breeze is nice. You can see that they would have made it if they'd only been maybe 30, 40 feet higher. Life is full of near misses and close calls, isn't it? Yeah, can happen that way. All right, let's head back down. We've been to the mountain, and it is us. Now, what do you think about the odds of getting struck by lightning or bitten by a, a great white shark as compared to going down in an air crash? Well, I know one person who saw someone bitten by a great white shark, and I don't know anyone that knew someone in an air crash, but that's only... Uh, that's not statistically significant, oh, I guess. Oh, no, I, I think it's hard science. <laughs> Speaking of science, you used to work at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Right. Is that it? That's it, SLAC. And tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, SLAC was built in the 60s. It was a two-mile-long device for accelerating electrons to begin with. And uh, it was there to study pure science. It was meant to discover properties of, uh, of subatomic particles. It started out as a way of shooting a very high energy beam into a target and then watching the remnants scatter from that. Later they built what are called storage rings which would have a beam of electrons and a beam of anti-electrons, positrons, circulating in opposite directions and then at a certain point, magnets would be used to bend them into each other. And uh, that gave you much higher energy. They both listened to the same magnets. The nice thing about having a positively charged particle and a negatively charged particle is that they hear a magnetic field in the opposite polarity. So they both were bent into, the, into each other by simply adjusting the magnets the same way. You could use the same magnets to control the positrons as you used to control the electrons. Huh. One of the biggest kicks I ever got at Slack was looking at a beam position monitor, which is basically a set of four studs inside the beam pipe that pick up a little charge as the electrons and positrons fly by. And a negatively charged particle will deflect the beam down, well, on the oscilloscope and a positively charged particle will deflect it up. And since I'd been working mostly with electronics, I'd never actually seen a, 
deflection that went up before. And uh, it's not a very usual sort of thing to see unless it's, it's an oscillation. But this was a single particle coming by and it left a single upward trace. It was very scary. Now what are the odds of someone seeing that as compared with being bitten by a white shark or being in an air crash? Well, since the Linear Accelerator Center is in the process now of being converted into a free electron laser rather than a, a linear accelerator, the odds are pretty good no one will ever see it at Slack again. Now, is this, is this uh, new use of Slack going to be pure science? No, this is more of a, um, an applied science. They're going to do material science. They're going to look at things like computer chip manufacturing techniques. They've been doing this kind of thing since, uh, I think, the 70s, when they first started the Stanford Synchrotron Radiation Lab. And that lab used um, electron, well, it used X-ray beams that were created when the electrons were bent around these storage rings. Whenever you accelerate a particle in a direction, you get an a scattering of radiation coming off from that particle. And they used that, what they called scavenger beams, to, uh, to study a lot of the stuff that had to do with making chips. And biology, um, you can look at the molecular level very easily with a bright elect um, electron source. So these are a bright x-ray source. And uh, that's what, what Slack is becoming now. Um, it's a whole other issue, but I'm sad to see this happen because I believe that the labs that are basically searching for things that are unknown find the more interesting stuff than the labs that have more practical use. Um, and so long term, it might be more profitable to indulge in so-called indulge in pure research, but there's more short-term thinking going on now. I'm afraid so. Um, Slack was the site of the unveiling of the first Apple computer at the Homebrew Computer Club, which used to meet in our auditorium. And that was a pretty big revolution at the start there. Um, many of the early computer companies were founded by people in that club. The uh, next time Slack played midwife to a new technology was in the early 90s when uh, one of the scientists, Paul Kunst, brought back a little software toy from Europe called the World Wide Web which the Slack library turned into a way of cutting down on their email, which was a practical excuse. <laughs> and uh, Slack was the first website in North America and also the first website to connect the World Wide Web to a database and essentially automate um, the retrieval of, in this case, um, information on published papers for people across the world. And that was really the first time that the web had been used as an actual production device. I remember spending years telling people, you know, you could put this up on the World Wide Web. You've heard of that? <laughs> that crow is still here, welcoming us back to Brooks's car. And now I'm going to turn this off.
That was a fun outing, all the more so because Brooks is such a knowledgeable and friendly guy who pursues multiple interests with a curiosity and zeal that I've always admired. These days, after retiring from a quarter century at Slack, playing with high-tech toys, working at the first website in America, having one-on-one conversations with Steve Wozniak, and as Brooks puts it, pampering multi-story particle detectors and watching the matter-antimatter electron-positron beams go by. Brooks is currently hunkered down in Washington State, frustrated by the COVID crisis, and who isn't? He says he's trying to retain what little Japanese he learned from extended stays in Tokyo, where everyone is wearing masks and staying healthy. Hmm. He's playing D&D online with old friends, watching too much anime, not getting enough exercise, and hoping to start traveling again this year. Good luck on that. Good luck to all of us. I want to thank Brooks for taking me to this very interesting place while I recorded our banter and for being a good friend in many other ways. By the way, I tried to find out who Sweeney Ridge was named for, but every source that offered possibilities also admitted that nobody knows for sure. Much more importantly, though, Sweeney Ridge is the place where Spaniard Gaspar de Portola's 1769 overland expedition members became the first Europeans to behold San Francisco Bay. I won't say they discovered it because, of course, Native Americans were living there already. Portola's find was an accident, too. He was actually searching for Monterey Bay and had missed it on the way north from San Diego, riding on horseback uh, on an inland route. But then, of course, the pirate explorer Sir Francis Drake had missed the entrance to San Francisco Bay entirely in 1579, even though he sailed past it twice on his ship, the Golden Hind, because of fog obscuring the view of the coast from sea. Isn't history fascinating and often a comedy of errors? Well, thanks for listening to my podcast. You'll find a photo of Brooks and photos of some of the wreckage from Flying Tiger Flight 282 on Andy's Treasure Trove. Also, check out the wildlife videos I shoot around my house in Tucson, Arizona on the Andy's Treasure Trove YouTube channel. And please, please, please leave a review of my podcast on iTunes or a comment on my website about any episode or the podcast in general. Please also share a link to andystreasuretrove.com on Facebook and other social networks. Thank you so much. See you next time. All rights reserved, Andy Moore.